Welcome, everyone. I'm Grandpa Jimmy, your host, and you're listening to the Family Stories Podcast. Unlike my guest today, I never dreamed I would enjoy writing. In fact, I never attempted to write a word before the age of 50. But somewhere along life's journey, I discovered I liked it. The problem was, I didn't know anything about writing. How hard could it be, I thought. Such a naive question. Then, God brought a friend into my life. And that friend has forever changed how I think about writing and storytelling. My guest is a seasoned journeyman in the world of storytelling. In print or on screen, I consider him the most creative storyteller I have ever met. We worked together for nine years, and he has been a trusted friend and mentor for at least 15. He never set out to be my writing coach. It happened organically, almost unknowingly, through our many conversations. Many of you know him. Stephen Bransford is Director of Media Productions for Andrew Ministries and Director of the Media School at Karis Bible College. He attended Bethany Bible College before earning an English degree from Arizona State University. He has provided various communication services for Billy Graham, Oral Roberts, Reinhard Bonnke, James Robison, the Assemblies of God, the United Methodist Church, the Boy Scouts of America, and many others. He is an award-winning author with novels published by Doubleday, Crossway, and Thomas Nelson, and a gross writer with books selling hundreds of thousands of copies worldwide. In 1999, he launched Andrew Womack on television through the Gospel Truth broadcast, and the audience was about 3% at that time. Today, the program reaches a potential audience of 3.4 billion worldwide. So, Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you, Jim. Um, man, that's quite an introduction. I don't know if I can live up to that. <laughs> well, you have to. Everybody expects you to. So you, okay. you have to live up to it. No choice. Uh, the important thing that I want to talk about today, Stephen, is the fact that Really, the hallmark of what you do at the school and other places is storytelling, self-discovery, and transformation. Give us something about that. What do you mean with those three things? You know, story is hardwired into the human brain. Uh, Actually, when I say hardwired, uh, I mean that. There's research on this. the the human being has an incredible computer beyond any computer ever manufactured for us uh, in the modern age. Your brain, and the brain is capable of things that still mystify scientists today. You have two things going on in your head. Your brain, which is the hardware, and your soul, if you will, your mind, your will, and your emotions, which is the software. And what scientists have discovered is that there is a physical connection between a story and a human being. It's palpable, apparently measurable. So knowing this, uh, stories have become more and more understood in our culture as for their importance. For me, I didn't know any of this. I just was a kid with an imagination growing up in a large family, trying to compete with my brothers and sisters for the attention and adulation of mom and dad. (laughs) That was it. 
And we competed quite ferociously, my brothers and sisters and I. We were a loud, boisterous, competitive family. But there I learned to tell stories in a way that would capture my audience. And Which was your family, my of family. course. My very yes. first audience was family. Uh, when I left home uh, and I went to Bible college, I was lost. I was a kid from a small town. I arrived in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, and I went to school in Santa Cruz. And I'll never forget my parents driving me to college because I didn't have a car. And they drove me down and left me there. But in the process of getting there, we drove through this, the San Francisco Bay Area. And I looked at this city and I just said, who could I ever be here? I was at least known in my little hometown. <laughs> I mean, I a few people knew me. I was not the star of anything. But I'm lost. I'm lost. And so I go to Bible college and uh, my first year... I discovered that I have something that I didn't know I'd ever used before, which was my voice. When you have a voice, you have a storytelling capability built in there. But you also, part of it is in music. So I auditioned, got in the music uh, choir because I had a bass voice. I couldn't read a note of yeah, music. And, and by the way, I have always envied that voice. It's yeah, not thank fair, you. you know, that you would have that. I get lots of compliments on my voice, but... <laughs> You know, it's, it's something I got from my father who was quite, had quite, quite a strong voice as well. He was a preacher. So he being a storyteller and the preachers that I heard growing up, uh, some of those stories became part of my DNA. But I get to Bible college now and I thought maybe I'd be a preacher, but I didn't know. Uh, but I became a singer right away. I, I was involved in four or five different performance groups by the end of my second year. By the end of my third year, I was asked to be a soloist in the San Francisco Sacred Concert Society. Suddenly, I found myself on a stage that just terrified me. And I had to make a decision. I sang operatic, you know, no room, you know. Anyway, <laughs> I had a big enough voice to fake it. <laughs> and um, a man came to me after the concert and he said, young man. I would like to sponsor you to study voice in Vienna and become an opera singer. What do you say? <laughs> I was blown away. I'm a kid. I don't know what this means. But I thought back and I said, well, what can I do? Nobody's ever offered me the world like this. Now, perhaps I have it. I go back and I remember another story. It was when I was 16 in high school in my itty-bitty town in Oregon. My English teacher held up a novel, Elmer Gantry. He said, now this is a novel, a great piece of American literature, and I want you to appreciate it. Well, I picked up Elmer Gantry, and I opened the first page, and it said, Elmer Gantry was drunk. I slammed the book shut. I was offended. My father was an Assemblies of God preacher, a man of upstanding character, never had a drink, never said a word, a cuss word, never. Uh, he was a man's man and an amazing character. He was a man of integrity, above all. And I was offended that a, a, a preacher who was an obvious fake would be considered a great piece of American literature. And I had 
a dream was born in me to tell a story eventually about a preacher who was accused of scandal, but he is proven to be the real thing, like my dad. So that was born in me at the age of 16 in high school. Now here I am at the age of 17, 18 in San Francisco, and suddenly I'm finding a way to be known as a singer, and I'm tempted to take this offer. And who, who wouldn't be? You know, I, I, was over, I felt like I was over my head. Because I, as I told you, I could not read a note of music. I faked it. <laughs> and they bought it. Okay. But, you know, I knew inside this wasn't me. Because I had a vision that was born in me. And that's what a vision is for. So I put my vision out in front of me, and I prayed about it. And I had to go back and tell that man, I'm sorry, I'm not going to follow this path. I believe I'm going to be a writer. So, so that was really your decision moment to get that was into one of one of the many decision moments. But that's when I said, I've got to choose. What am I going to be? Then I had to say, well, is being a writer does it involve being a preacher? So I'm at the Bible college, right? My final semester there, I started a jazz rock group because I was all the traditional religious music was boring me. I now wanted to go rock and roll. <laughs> and, and you know, write good new music, too. But, you know, I like Chicago. I like Blood, Sweat, and Tears. That was 1969. And I burst onto the scene in the, in the San Francisco Bay Area 50 years ago with a group called Brotherhood. We just had our 50-year reunion, by the way. Did was, you really? It was sweet. It was fun to get back with the guys and just remember. But this was, this was seminal for me. I wrote a song called The Now Life for the Brotherhood to perform at a youth convention in Fresno, California. And when I wrote this music, uh, I didn't know how to, how to write music, but I knew sort of the tune. And I got with the musicians in my group and I said, look, here, here's a concept. What do you think? And I would kind of sing a part and they would arrange it and they would write it on pages. I still have those uh, amazing chicken scratchings on paper that I can't read, but they could <laughs> all read. They were all good musicians. But I wrote the concept, and I knew I was on a, an edge as a storyteller. I was going to tell a story now in music like I used to tell at the family dinner table trying to win mom and dad's affection. Uh -huh. Now, I'm, in, I'm going to be in front of this group of young people who are like me, yearning for something to break through from the traditional religious music they had been exposed to. It was going to be a youth... Uh, church convention. 7,000 kids were in that room. When my band got on stage, nobody knew we were coming. There was no announcement. 12 you guys, just walked on stage. 12 guys walk on stage, jazz rock, drummers, guitars, sax, uh, trombone, trumpet. We were a blood, sweat, and tears or a um, Chicago type music. And when they unleashed my song, I was singing backup. I was not singing lead because you have to have a high, girly voice to be in rock music. And a bass singer like me has to 
sing back up. <laughs> <laughs> but I was good with that. I love these guys. We nailed my song, and I watched that crowd. And when we ended that song, those kids, 7,000, stormed out of the stands, out of their seats, and rushed the stage. They really? rioted. Really? They threw coats and other pieces of clothing on stage. They whistled. They stomped. It tore the place apart. And I looked into the crowd and I saw the president of my Bible college stand up in a huff and walk out of that room. Oh, my goodness. I was history. <laughs> really? <laughs> that success launched me out of any. Any idea that I'd be a preacher. <laughs> I broke the mold. Not only that, the main speaker for this event was a man named Jimmy Swaggart. Jimmy Swaggart got up and condemned my group and our music. <laughs> and we'd cut a little 45 called The Now Life. I've got a copy of it at home on the wall. And this little 45 demo record, we went out into the lobby and we spent the rest of the evening signing autographs. The kids loved us. <laughs> so, so did this launch a music career? It launched several music careers, but not mine. Oh, okay. <laughs> because I was, like I said, I was a bass singer, but what was I? That What was important about that moment for me was not the singing. It was the writing. I had written something that touched a deep chord in my audience. And when I saw the power that it, it displayed, I was changed then. Forever. You were hooked. You were a writer at I that point. I wanted to put words together. And until then, by the way, I had primarily only written personal poetry. Uh-huh. You know? And I would write poetry. They would publish it in the school paper and that sort of thing. But it was very controversial. In those days, 1967, 68, uh, 69, um, if you had hair on touching your ear, somehow you you would be in trouble with or, or, you know, there were dress codes and grooming codes for Christians that you, just to keep us from becoming hippies. Well, I put on a pair of uh, John Lennon glasses, and I let my hair start growing, and I was the campus radical. <laughs> and I was a bit of a leader and a speaker. I could speak for our cause and represent it and say, hey, we're trying to become relevant to our generation. Okay, I was young. I was foolish, all of those things. However, I also was talented, and I had something to offer, and I had just experienced the power of it. There's something that you had that's very interesting and I think very rare, an ability to have insight like maybe other people don't see. I mean, you see things differently. Tell me about that. Yes. In fact, I think it's very, very key. I actually looked, and I'm not sure where this came from. I might have to dig in myself a little bit to find out. But I have always, as far as I can remember, I have always tried to look at everything people take for granted as an outsider. I'm an outsider looking in. Uh -huh. I am... Now, I can get in, you know, and it, it actually where this began, I'll tell you where it began. It began with church. I was raised in a Pentecostal church where people would speak in tongues. It was hysterical emotion at times. And I was so embarrassed by my church growing up. My father was the pastor. But I was so 
deeply embarrassed I would never invite one of my friends to church. Is that right? But here's the other thing. In that church, with all of what I consider to be its uncouth excess, I received Jesus Christ as my Savior. I received what they called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, in my case, it was not with speaking in tongues. It was with a baptism of incredible, supernatural love of God that, that invaded me and I've never has never left me. When I was eight years old, I experienced that. But what do you do with that as an eight-year-old? You don't know what you're doing. <laughs> it was way too much for me to handle, but it never, never went away to this day. Eventually, I grew, and I began to appreciate this subculture that I was raised in. And when I went to Bible college, I was attempting now to help them relate to the bigger world and not look so weird. Okay, that was me. I'm sorry. That's just really frank, okay? It's true, though. (laughs) It's absolutely true. It's true. And so that perspective, I believe, caused me to look at everything I do, and I'm able to see it from the outside, appreciate what's on the inside, and then build a bridge through writing and storytelling between those two worlds so that people who are believers and read my work I have a goal. I want people who are believers and they never think about what they believe. They just believe it. And they don't think about how they appear or how, what, they, what, they, what impression they make on the world. I want them to see God bigger than they've, the box they've put him in. Because he is. Way bigger. Way, you know, it's taken bigger. me. I'm 70 years old. You and I are close to the same age, but... But it's only really in in the last decade that I begin to look beyond those restrictions that you're talking about right now. That box, it's so easy just to put God in a box and forget the rest of the world out there. It it really is. It's a comfort zone. And so I would always disturb the comfort zone. At Bible college, I disturbed everybody's comfort zone every day. By the way, you're still disturbing everybody's comfort zone. (laughs) (laughs) In some ways, I know that I am, truly. And, and, and in, I have worked for many ministries now. In every ministry that I've ever been involved in, including the one I'm in right now, I become a bit of a contrarian. I, I've noticed that, by I'm the way. I'm against the grain of the assumptions, not, not in a negative way, but in a positive. My, my goal is not to tear you down. My goal is to build you up in Christ to see him bigger than you've ever seen him, to see his working in the world more marvelously than you've ever seen it, to get out of your box, but to appreciate the box for what it is. You know, what is it and what is it not? So those are things that guide me in storytelling, and that was pretty much an influence that that stayed very strong with me. I'm glad you made that observation. I I don't think about it too much anymore, but I want the believing audience to see God bigger than they've ever seen him. And the other side of it is equal. I want the unbelieving audience to look back at Christian faith and do a double take and go, oh, there's something I've missed. I have written it off so easily I want to open their mind and plant a seed or two that will lead them to reconsider. 
And those are the things that really that really balance my storytelling and, and drive it to, to this day. I want to accomplish that in people's lives. Well, you know, we're, I'm going to have you back if you're willing. And, and we're going to do a podcast just on storytelling and how you do it. You know, I, okay. that in itself is an amazing journey right there. But tell me a little bit about self-discovery and how that plays into all of this. All right, self-discovery. Um, you know, I was a selfish child from birth. I have pictures from my childhood of my brother and I. He was two years older than me. I have childhood pictures, and when you see us together, we're just little diaper-wearing waifs sitting in a doorway back in Oregon, where it all began. And my brother and I are sitting there, and he is just, he's got so much expression on his face. He's looking at the camera and smiling at mom or whoever's taking the picture. And he is the darling. I am ignoring everything. I am playing with something I've discovered, and I am into myself. I have these pictures on my website, by the way, and I do this story. I, I do a blog. Um, can't remember the title of it. I can't. But anyway, <laughs> I put I put pictures of my brother and I on there, and I say I am the selfish one. Okay. Uh-huh. And so, self discovery for me became was kind of a natural thing. I was selfish. I was self-centered. I was self-focused. And it was good and it was bad. Mostly people would say bad. They would want to correct me. And as I grew through college and went on to later in life, I crashed and burned at about the age of 25 because of all that. But you know what? I discovered then a new kind of self-discovery. It wasn't about selfishness. It wasn't about self-centeredness. It was about who am I? So it wasn't about judgment or condemnation. No. Well, it had been. Yes. <laughs> it had been. That's why I crashed and burned at 25. My religion, my background really condemned me. But when I rebuilt, I began, God, God was very good to me through that. I mean, that was probably the best my wife calls it a breakthrough. It wasn't a breakdown. <laughs> it was a breakthrough to a new, a whole new way of life. So it served me well, and I began to see my emotions, and, and I kind of put God and all the bigger issues on the shelf for a couple years, and I just said, i got to figure out who I am as a human being. Uh, when I was eight, I received this incredible religious experience. I was raised in this Pentecostal environment. It was all apocalyptic. Now, what do I do with that knowledge? I've got to figure out what was missing and what was wrong. And what was missing really was the human being part of me. I hadn't grown up right. Uh, I had been selfish, self-centered, and had all those issues. But now it was about, all right, let's let's sort out what it means to just be a normal human being. And I, I brought my emotions down out of the clouds and down out of the apocalypse now realm into everyday human experience. And I began to grow comfortable with being a human being and letting God be God way bigger than I could comprehend. And I began to grow from there. Um, there were a number of steps in there that were just super good. Um, 
the things that I'd learned in my childhood and the things that had happened to me in the religious experience was the real thing. I describe it this way. I had received the priceless baby Jesus wrapped in barbed wire. <laughs> now, that's interesting. How could I embrace the true and not be hurt? How could I embrace something so precious and priceless and not be wounded? It was impossible. So what I had to begin to do as a human being was eventually grow to where I could start taking the barbed wire off of the baby. Now, what happens with most people, and I discovered this, most people throw the baby out with the barbed wire. That's true. They do. They do. And they suffer horrible things because of that. I didn't do that. Somehow I knew the baby was priceless. The real gift that I'd been given as a child, in spite of all of the excesses and difficulties that went with it, that that real priceless gift, that was worth everything. And so it took years, years of taking the barbed wire off of the baby. Still going on, although right now I would say the barbed wire is gone. Jesus has grown up. <laughs> He's Lord of the universe. So that that's all part of really discovering who you are. Self-discovery. Becoming real. Yes. And now it, it it involves a couple things. I don't know. How much time do we have left today? Uh, take another five minutes or so. And we'll, well, yeah, we will end one. I need to bring we'll... this in for a landing because it's self-discovery is, is really big with me. But people misunderstand it all the time because of the selfishness thing. You know, Christians are into such false humility. You know, it's all about, oh, you can't think of yourself. You can't navel gazing. Oh, it's horrible, blah, blah, blah. Bunch of religious stuff. Just let it go. But what's real? My human self is a fallen creature. And when I discovered who I was as a human being, I discovered good and I discovered not so good. Really? <laughs> I got the rest <laughs> of the picture. And some of it was so, you know, so hard to face that I thought I would die rather than see those dark parts of myself. And I, going, I, frankly, I went through two years of therapy, okay? But it was excellent. And in the second year, it was group therapy. So I, other people were piling on, you know, and tearing me apart. And I let them in order for me to discover what was real. Yeah, that's not self-discovery. That's condemnation. <laughs> well, there was some of that going, but I overcame it because of why. I didn't throw the baby out. That's why. The baby is about hope, never-ending, overcoming. No matter how this hurts, this is not the end of the story. No matter how dark it seems today, this is not the end of the story. It's way bigger than you. It's way bigger than this moment. It's way bigger than this humiliation you feel. There's a fantastic hope shining in this baby that I did not throw out. So that guided me through those years and kept me growing and becoming more whole. In two years, man, I launched a career. I, I was off to the races as a writer, a professional. I haven't stopped since. And, you know, as you've written in your book, and which we will discuss on another program, is that until you've really 
come to that point of self-discovery, not that we don't continue to do that, and it's, yeah. it's the inside of how God made you. Yeah. But once you get through that self-discovery, you have to do that to a degree to write effectively, do you not? And to tell a story. If you haven't gone there, your stories are all superficial. You have said it beautifully, Jim. Uh, that's it. That's why that's so important and why I I focus on it in my uh, website. You know, it's storytelling, self-discovery, and transformation. That's another Another element. That well, what we'll it. do then, uh, this is about 30 minutes here so far, so I'm going to wrap this up. But what we're going to do on the very next broadcast is we're going to walk into this self-discovery and transition that into transformation. And then we'll do some more about storytelling, if that's okay with you. Hey, it's fine, Jim. <laughs> You're my buddy. <laughs> so, Stephen, again, just thank you so much for being on the program today. It's such a blessing. And I know there's a lot more to come. We're going, to, we're going to move on from self-discovery into transformation and then maybe even a little bit about how to actually tell a story and what's involved in that. Uh, but you have a new book out, my friend, and I'm going to put it on my website if you let me. And it's called You've Got a Story and It's Better Than You Think. And I must tell everybody, you've heard that at the end of my programs. I didn't steal it. I borrowed it from Stephen. And I heard it from him 10 years ago, so it's not fresh. <laughs> But it is an unbelievable book. I have read it twice. So how can they get a hold of you? How can they get the book? Yeah, I um, I think if they go to my website, it's stephenbransford.com. Just that simple. My name. Uh, and it's S-T-E-P-H-E-N-B-R-A-N-S-F-O-R-D. stephenbransford.com. And the first thing that you will see on my homepage is you've got a story and it's better than you think. Then you can take it from there. The blogs are there. You can start looking into those. I hope it blesses you. So there you go. Order that book. It is worth it. Thank you all for listening. God bless you. Have a good day.